I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and kittens. Dave Yost here and welcome to OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. So the Super Bowl was a couple weeks ago and I'm already missing football. Uh, by the way, for our international listeners, I'm, I'm of course referring to American football and not, you know, football. And that's going to come up a bunch in this episode. So just letting you know at the top. It's American football. So football. I am a fan. Uh, It's probably my second favorite sport after baseball. And I'm going to use this platform to needlessly brag that I uh, won my fantasy football league this year using the power of economics and the consistently amazing talents of Drew Brees, Mark Ingram, and Ezekiel Elliott. But mainly the economics. And of course... It's hard to talk about football without eventually talking about concussions. Unless, of course, you're Roger Goodell. But hey, since I'm not Roger Goodell, and I truly doubt that he listens to this podcast, let's feel free to dive right in. Today, I'm going to solve the NFL's concussion problem using the power of economics. Specifically, using a concept adopted by behavioral economists known as moral hazard. Moral hazard revolves around the effect that safety, or at least the feeling of safety, has on our attitudes towards risk and on our behaviors. We live in a society that is largely, and not incorrectly, obsessed with safety. We want protection from all the bad things that could happen to us. It's a natural human reaction. The world can be a very dangerous place, and we want to use all of our tools and technology to insulate us from those dangers as much as possible. And on the face of it, 
There should be nothing wrong with that. But there's one slight hitch, and it lies in the, the other parts of our own nature. You see, when we as human beings feel safe, that, that feeling, for one reason or another, tends to translate in us feeling comfortable engaging in riskier and riskier behavior. And that tendency, which can be tracked clearly through statistics, is moral hazard. Before I dive too far into examples, let me give you just a quick and, and very heavily abbreviated history of the term and the ideas behind it. Moral hazard is actually a concept that has appeared as far back as the 17th century. Uh, it was usually tied to insurance. In the 1860s, uh, the term appeared in a fire insurance manual called the practice of fire underwriting, uh, where it was defined as the danger proceeding from motives to destroy property by fire or permit its destruction. And it makes sense that this idea would first be noticed by insurance underwriters. After all, when you're insured, you tend to worry less about what happens to your property because, well, you're insured. Uh, it's the whole point of insurance. By buying it, you have that all-elusive peace of mind that insurance companies love to, love to advertise. But an unintended consequence comes out of that, one that insurance companies started to notice. In the practice of fire underwriting, what they're talking about really is arson and their client's likelihood of committing it. Now, normally, you would never dream of, say, setting your house on fire, because there's no incentive for you to do so. Your house provides you with shelter and equity. You wouldn't dream of intentionally destroying it. In fact, your house is so precious to you that you're more than willing to take on any and all steps necessary to protect it from destruction. You make sure that there are no severe fire hazards. You maintain it. You keep a watchful eye out for anything that might damage it. You're so concerned about it that you decide to get yourself some peace of mind. And you get an insurance policy on it. Just in case some disaster strikes that you couldn't possibly have controlled for. Except now, with the insurance, your incentives shift slightly. Because you actually stand to gain a decent amount of money should something happen to your house. If fire were to break out, you're covered. You'll be fully compensated because of the insurance. And if you ever get to a point in your life where that compensation is more important to you than the house itself, maybe you light a match, evacuate the house, and call your insurance agent. That scenario, extreme as it may be, was what fire underwriters were noticing back in the 1860s. It's the most basic of insurance scams. Insure something that you don't want, destroy it in a way that's covered under the insurance, and collect the money, which you do want. 
But there's something a little more subtle at play there, something that the, the fire underwriters had, had touched on but didn't quite realize that they had. Let's take that same scenario, but let's say that you never get to a point where you would actually commit arson on your own house. But you still have the insurance and the peace of mind that comes with it. You feel safe, protected, literally and figuratively insured. So maybe you get a little less vigilant about potential fire hazards, because after all, you're insured. Maybe you aren't as cautious about leaving a, a fire burning in the fireplace after you've gone to sleep. It's still 1860 in the, this scenario. Maybe you care a little less about where you store your collection of oily rags. Maybe you pay less attention to dried leaves that are gathering on your floor. You're insured. You have peace of mind. And of course, because you feel safe, you feel covered, you let your guard down, and the whole place catches on fire. And so long as you and your family are able to get out, you'll be made whole again by the insurance that you had. But the question you have to ask, because your insurance company was starting to back then, was would that fire have started in the first place had you not been lulled into a sense of security by the fact that you had insurance? Would you have remained much more vigilant about fire hazards and thus safer if you felt like there was a significant threat of losing everything in a fire? With that, we're going to fast forward to the early 1970s. And an economist out of the University of Chicago named Sam Peltzman Peltzman made a name for himself in 1973 when he penned a paper that stood in opposition to regulations levied against drug manufacturers. His basic thesis was that by the government imposing stiff regulations on pharmaceuticals manufacturers, they were stifling the ability of those companies to get new and possibly life-saving drugs out into the market. Now let's give this a little context so that we can take in the idea in its entirety. In 1962, the Food and Drug Administration imposed new regulations on pharmaceuticals companies, which required significantly longer testing periods before a drug could be approved for sale, largely due to the recent thalidomide scandal. Just in case you're only Familiarity with the word is from the song, We Didn't Start the Fire. Thalidomide was a drug that was developed to combat morning sickness in pregnant women. And it worked. Except, as we would come to find out, it also caused serious birth defects in the children that the women who took it would have. Now, Sam Peltzman wasn't advocating for the release of drugs that caused birth defects, nor was he dismissing the damages caused by the release of thalidomide. His point, such as it was, was that the FDA couldn't know which new drugs would have harmful side effects and which ones wouldn't. By prolonging the process for approval, they were saving people from exposure to drugs with harmful side effects, 
but they were also holding back drugs that would cure or alleviate other medical problems that didn't have harmful side effects. Basically, if there was a drug in the FDA approval process that would cure a particular kind of cancer, and you had that particular kind of cancer, you may want them to make sure that it was safe, but if that process took longer than you could survive without the drug, the FDA, by striving for safety, was handing you a death sentence. Now, this is an early incarnation of the idea that Peltzman would later refine, and I personally find this rough draft problematic, as I'm sure most of you do. It's important to remember that economists tend to look at things in the aggregate, not always down to the human level. And that's not done to be cruel or, or cold-hearted, but rather because the greater truth often lies in the aggregate. If we focus in on the individual stories, I think that we'd all side with the victims of thalidomide and say, unsafe, untested drugs cannot be allowed to be sold to the public. What happened to those children and to their mothers was a genuine tragedy. But the point that Peltzman was making was that if you look at the whole of the world and all of the illnesses out there and all of the drugs being developed to treat them, you may find that more of the drugs being developed don't have negative side effects, and by holding them back for prolonged testing, we're allowing more people to die from what could be treatable illnesses in order to prevent the occasional thalidomide tragedy. Again, that's Peltzman's argument, not mine. While I see his point, and it is a fair one, I'm not sure that when it comes to pharmaceuticals, I'd be entirely comfortable saying, let's just rely on the law of averages and let the chips fall where they may. I'd like to think that there is a middle way where we can properly screen drugs for negative side effects while still getting important medical breakthroughs out to the market as soon as possible. It only takes viewing a, a modern pharmaceutical commercial on TV to make you cock an eyebrow at Peltzman's claim, when the advertised side effects of drugs that have been approved by the FDA can sometimes include death, we may want to let the FDA do its thing. But Peltzman didn't stop with pharmaceuticals. Two years later, he would refine his theory by taking aim at another source of increasing regulation in a paper titled the effects of automobile safety regulation. What he mostly objected to in this paper was the ever-increasing list of safety requirements for automobile manufacturers that had been imposed since 1966, among them the requirement to include seat belts in vehicles. And it's here that I, I think Peltzman started to get a firm footing under his idea. He noticed in his paper that advocates for automotive safety regulations like to point out that thanks to the new requirements, the annual number of automobile-related deaths per vehicle mile traveled had dropped 
by 10 to 25 percent. An impressive statistic. But that this reduction was entirely offset by an increase in pedestrian injuries and property damage. So more people were wearing seatbelts, and that was preventing them from dying when they got into a car crash. But as a result of the increased feeling of safety that drivers had because of the presence of seatbelts, they tended to drive faster and more recklessly, thus increasing the likelihood that they would get into a crash. This concept came to be known as the Peltzman effect, and it had share of evidence supporting it, as, as well as its detractors. Supporting it, you had people like Gerald Wilde, who would modify and expand on the, the Peltzman effect by suggesting that we all have a, a kind of a personal risk thermostat, and that whenever our actions are made safer, we will always adjust the conditions to get back to our standard temperature of risk, thus negating the benefits of any actions taken to reduce risk. While pointed to car accident statistics from Sweden prior to and immediately after 1967. Now, in 1967, Sweden switched its road configuration from driving on the left side to driving on the right. And in the months and years following the switch, the number of driving-related deaths and injuries dropped massively. Wilde attributed this to the people of Sweden feeling unsure of the new road configuration and thus driving more cautiously in general. This was given even more weight when after a few years the number of car-related deaths and injuries crept back up to the standard level as the people of Sweden got used to the new way of driving and started assuming more risk. On the other side of the debate were people like Leon Robertson, uh, who was a scholar hired on by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Robertson saw several very legitimate issues in Peltzman's methodology and, that, and, and said that once these issues were adjusted for, the result of safety regulations was overall safer driving conditions. He accused Peltzman of bending and distorting data to fit his theory, and in some cases he had a fair point himself. The debate over whether or not safety regulations protect more lives than they hurt is still, well, debatable. Whether or not the lives saved by imposing safety regulations are outweighed by the lives lost by people driving more dangerously comes down to, in most cases, it, com it comes down to how you want to parse the statistics. The problem that you will always come back to is that in order to get a truly definitive answer, you would need identical test subjects under different conditions. Because the statistics that exist are inevitably comparing the result of different people who likely have their own driving habits that govern how they drive, whether they're buckled up or not, it's hard to get an indisputable result. You would have to have a, a person and then also have their exact clone. One driving with a seatbelt and one without 
to really see if there was a noticeable change in driving habits between the two conditions. To me, the important thing to come out of all the controversy surrounding Peltzman and, and, and his papers was a heavily refined version of his idea that we would today call moral hazard. Because at least in concept, Peltzman was right. Making people feel safer will encourage them to engage in riskier behavior. We can see this in full effect when we look at the introduction of anti-lock brakes. For those of you too young to remember, there was a time when brakes in a car would lock. If you, if, if the road surface was, was slippery enough and you slammed down on the brake, the wheel would stop spinning, but without, without any traction, and it would cause you to go into a skid. Anti-lock brakes were designed to prevent that. If you've ever pushed down on your brake and felt it pushing back against you, that's an anti-lock brake. You may not hear too much about them these days because they've become pretty much standard on most cars, but when they were introduced, they were a selling point because they offered greater safety to drivers. The problem was that after anti-lock brakes become, became more widely used, car companies looked at the statistics of traffic accidents and they saw no change. The reason? Well, with anti-lock brakes, your stopping distance went way down. You could bring your car to a full stop in much less time over much less road. As a result of that knowledge, people drove faster and they started braking later. This, of course, increased the likelihood that you wouldn't stop in time and would still slam into the car in front of you. Not only that, but before anti-lock brakes became ubiquitous, it also dramatically increased the likelihood that even if you could stop in time, avoiding rear-ending the car in front of you, the guy behind you probably didn't have anti-lock brakes, and he couldn't, and he would wind up rear-ending you. So why are economists concerned with moral hazard? I mean, all of what I've talked about so far has been about the FDA and car safety. What does any of this have to do with the economy? Well, for one, the economy is really just an aggregated concept of human behavior. So all human, human behavior can affect it, which is why economists are fascinated by quirks of human behavior like this. Two, moral hazard extends far beyond prescription drugs and driving. That's prescription drugs and driving. Yeah, you, get, you get it. Let's take a look at some of the broader ideas in moral hazard. Forest fires. Since the early part of the 20th century, the U.S. Uh, Forest Service has had a strict policy of containing and preventing forest fires. Uh, such fires could be deadly, and they were certainly damaging to our natural preserves as well as the property surrounding them. The problem is that fires are a part of any forest's natural ecology. Fires clear out dead wood and, and low brush, allowing for new growth. This cycle serves to limit the amount of ready fuel available to future fires. 
But when we start actively preventing regular fires from happening, the result is that when a fire does inevitably start, it tends to rage out of control because there's a glut of dead wood, leaves, and low brush to fuel it. Experts have found, uh, by the later half of the 20th century, that through our policy of prevention, we were actually making fires more damaging and more dangerous. Sorry, Smokey. As a result, we've now been experimenting with allowing forest fires to burn, thus serving their purpose in the larger ecological system. But of course, this has come with mixed results, since a century of prevention has caused conditions to be ideal for some pretty significant and hard-to-control fires. By striving and succeeding for safety, we've made things much more dangerous. You can see a similar effect when it comes to floods. In an earlier time, a flood would be devastating to anyone unlucky enough to be caught in it. Assuming you made it out alive, you almost certainly lost all of your possessions as well as your home. But then along came flood insurance, and all of a sudden, you could get caught in a flood and be covered. You finally had peace of mind. Except the insurance has only served to increase the number of people who experience floods. Why? Well, back when you had no safety net protecting you, people tended to avoid living in floodplains, precisely because these were places that tended to flood, and a flood could wipe you out. By insuring you against losses in a flood, flood insurance eliminated the disincentive to live in places that were susceptible to flooding. So people moved to those areas. But the floods still happened. The insurance didn't make them go away. So instead of avoiding the danger, people built homes and communities in riskier and riskier areas. Their protection against losses from flooding has made it more likely that they will lose things in a flood. This also ties into an interesting concept when it comes to natural disasters more generally. Proponents of global climate change like to point to statistics of, of damage from natural disasters like fires, floods, and hurricanes as proof of the existence of global climate change and its effects. Essentially, if you look at damage from natural disasters in, in, in terms of dollars over time, the cost keeps going up. But that is a terrible statistic to use because it is massively deceptive. Now, before I go on, I, I want to cut off at least half of the potential angry comments that I'm going to receive right off the bat. Neither I nor any of the other economists who talk about this are denying the existence of global climate change. It's a thing. It's real. Anyone who cares to can look at the numbers and see that global temperatures are rising and that this is having an effect on weather patterns and the severity of storms across the globe. None of that is being contested here. What I am saying is that by looking at the total cost of property damage 
as a correlation to the severity of storms, you are doing your argument an incredible disservice by using a statistic that is better explained by other factors. What other factors, you may ask? Well, to illustrate this, let me start with kind of an extreme example, and then we'll walk it back into some more useful territory. In 2012, Superstorm Sandy hit the east coast of the United States, doing $70 billion worth of damage, the second costliest storm in U.S. history. But pointing to that as proof of more severe weather falls apart almost immediately. One, Sandy wasn't that severe, relatively. It had been a hurricane, but by the time it got to the East Coast, it had been downgraded to a post-tropical cyclone. Two, and more importantly, the severity of the storm was less important when it came to totaling up damages than where the storm actually hit. Sandy struck at some of the most densely populated areas in the entire United States as well as areas with some of the highest property values. Similar storms have hit the East Coast before, going all the way back to 1635, but the 1635 storm caused fairly little damage. Why? Because relatively fewer people lived there in 1635, and what structures were there were small villages. In 1893, a Category 2 storm hit the area, and in 1938, a Category 3 storm, uh, nicknamed the Long Island Express, hit it again. But that 1938 uh, storm only caused $5 billion worth of damage. So why did a stronger storm cause less damage? Well, if you haven't guessed already, It's because there wasn't as much stuff there. The 1893 storm hit Hog Island, which is right about where JFK Airport is today. Except in 1893, there was no JFK Airport to damage. The increase in the cost of storms like this has as much, if not more, to do with the expansion and urban development, uh, especially into areas where weather events like this can happen. By settling these areas, we're exposing ourselves to the weather that affects them, and that will lead to inevitable increases in the dollar amount of damage done when such things happen. It's a case of moral hazard, because storms like this don't often make their way this far north. So we settle there, and our settlements become dense cities. So when a storm does come that far up, It does more damage simply because there are more things to damage. Our sense of safety has exposed us to greater risk. Now, to bring things into more familiar territory for an economics podcast, moral hazard has been a major concern in the two biggest financial crises of the past 10 years. For those of you who are closely watching the news through... Uh, throughout the summer of 2008, you might remember hearing the term moral hazard thrown out a lot back then. 
While being grilled by reporters at the height of the crisis, then-Secretary of the Treasury Hank Paulson famously stated, Moral hazard is something I don't take lightly. So how did moral hazard play into the 2008 financial crisis? Well, simply put, as our financial institutions began to collapse, the government was naturally inclined to prevent that from happening through the use of bailouts. Of course, the problem that both Secretary Paulson and then-Chairman of the Federal Reserve Ben Bernanke often noted was that giving massive bailouts to these financial institutions would create significant moral hazard within the financial markets. After all, if you can drive your firm into bankruptcy through trading in subprime mortgages that you didn't properly protect yourself from or even really fully understand, and then have the government come in and throw money at you and make everything all better, what's to stop you from continuing to take on unreasonable amounts of risk again in the future? The question has been at, uh, has been at play among economists and policymakers for decades. As various banking and financial crises have, have occurred, the easiest way to stop the dominoes from falling and leading to a major market crash or even a prolonged depression is for the government to swoop in and bail out a failing institution. The problem there is that once the government establishes that they're willing to do that, then it leads to a sense that there will be no consequences to bad decision-making or unreasonable risk-taking in those markets affected. High-risk investment is always tempting, because if it works out, the payouts are incredibly high. The reason that we don't all throw our money at high-risk investments is because the potential to lose everything is also really high. The presence of risk makes us all weary of betting our life savings. But if you were told that if an investment didn't work out, rather than lose everything, you'd get all your money back through a kind of bailout, you'd be much more likely to start swinging for the fences. And that's exactly what we saw with our country's largest financial institutions. The pattern that had emerged through government policy over the decades leading up to 2008, uh, the 2008 crisis was that if a bank or a firm was large enough to the point where the collapse would hurt the U.S. economy as a whole, then the government would bail them out to avoid the negative effects of that failure. This is where the concept of too big to fail comes from. And in 2008, the government had assisted Bear Stearns and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as the consequences of the subprime mortgage crisis continued to unfold. So when it came time for Lehman Brothers, there was an assumption that the government would step in and stop it from having to declare bankruptcy. Thankfully, cooler heads prevailed and Lehman wasn't bailed out because to do so would have continued to demonstrate that there, that there was no way to truly fail and thus incited other firms to keep taking on ridiculous amounts of bad loans. Now, at some point, 
I want to do what will probably be a, a, a multi-part episode outlining all the gory details of the 2008 financial crisis. And that will probably involve a debate over the prudence of the Bear Stearns bailout versus letting Lehman go under, and also whether or not the final outcome really served to effectively prevent conditions of moral hazard in the financial markets. But for now... I'll just say that, if nothing else, that was the intent of the policymakers back in 2008. The other financial crisis where moral hazard comes into play was, of course, the Greek debt crisis. If you haven't already, you should check out the uh, two-part episode that I did with Joseph Nadal regarding the Eurozone crisis and where we get into the details of this. But for those of you that do remember those episodes, you should recall that a lot of the crisis revolved around whether or not the more economically stable countries in the Eurozone should bail out failing economies like the Greeks. Just like with the 2008 crisis, if Germany and France bailed out Greece, wouldn't that just serve to demonstrate to the rest of the Eurozone countries that you don't have to actually engage in any kind of fiscal prudence. Just spend until you hit a crisis point and someone else will come and rescue you. As we discussed in those earlier episodes, there were a lot of other factors at play and, and, and other considerations to take in. But the overall issue was primarily one of a question of moral hazard. If it, if it is demonstrated that there are no real negative consequences, if, if failure is not going to be allowed, if the system itself will always provide safety to avoid catastrophe, then, then we, whether it's people or companies or countries, will tend to engage in riskier behavior. And that brings us back to football. I started the show saying that I was going to solve the NFL's problem with concussions using the concept of moral hazard. So let's do that. Now, whether they fully or publicly admit it, the NFL has been trying to solve this problem, either directly or indirectly, for some time now. In an interview a few years ago, Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers was asked what he thought could be done to help prevent concussions. And he said this. In your opinion, what's the biggest NFL obstacle for solving concussions? The biggest ox- obstacle, I think, would be uh, the mindset of players. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, as much as they have everything in place possible to... Uh, they have people who actually watch. They watch every player. Like I think there's one up in the booth, and then there's, uh, you know, we have a number of doctors on the sidelines watching concussions. Um, the helmets and the pads are as safe as anything you can possibly get them at this point. Yeah. Uh, but players feeling comfortable, um, self-monitoring, and and uh, if you have one, you know, telling telling somebody about it. Now I'm from Chicago. And as such, I am a loyal Chicago Bears fan. But don't take that as a bias when I say that Aaron Rodgers and his stupid face couldn't be more wrong. Sure, 
Green Bay dominated the Bears last year. And most of the years before that. But truly, from an economics perspective, Aaron Rodgers is wrong. A fact, he probably figured out last October when he received a season-ending injury by having his collarbone broken. Football players have some of the best and most sophisticated protective gear in the history of sports. Aaron Rodgers was wearing that same gear, and it still didn't prevent him from getting his collarbone broken. Now, the natural inclination of most people would be to say, well, we clearly need to develop even better protective gear to prevent such injuries. The problem with that solution as sensible as it may seem, is that it's exactly what the NFL has been doing for the past 50 years. Every time there's a more dramatic or gruesome injury, the instinct is to improve the pads and helmets to better protect the players. But over that same 50 years, injury, <clears throat> injury rates keep going up. And the injuries that are happening keep getting worse. So we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Well, if you haven't guessed already, the answer lies in moral hazard. As football players get better protective gear, as they get stronger pads and, and more sophisticated helmets that protect them from impacts, they feel safer which makes them feel like they can engage in, more, in a more aggressive style of play. And of course, through that more aggressive style of playing, they wind up overcoming the protection offered by their equipment and doling out more damaging injuries than they would have before. In the earlier days of the NFL, a defensive player would have never considered what is now called spearing, where... They basically use their head as a battering ram, dropping down to hit the other player with the top of their helmet. Why? Because to do so <laughs> with a less effective helmet would have hurt that defensive player just as much as the player they were hitting. But with an increased sense of safety coming from having better, more effective helmets, players feel comfortable using spearing as a technique. It's ironic, too, because not only does a helmet first hit deliver a devastating blow to the person being tackled, but it's also likely the cause of concussions in the player making the tackle. The presence of safety, or at least the false sense of safety, is instilling players with the feeling that they can engage in a more dangerous style of play, and thus doing more harm than good. Now, don't take my word for it. One of the more sensible voices when it comes to the issue of injuries in football is the man himself, Mike Ditka. And again, this isn't my particular Chicago bias, but his take falls in line with the lessons of moral hazard that we've been talking about here. He says... Right now, the league has to do something about it. Here, here's what I'm going to tell you. In the old days, the helmets weren't. They were not sufficient. But 
they didn't have a big face mask on them either. Now, when you take a helmet today and you take the weight with the face mask on, it becomes a weapon. People leave with their heads. It's going to happen. It's just the nature of the game. It, it, it's, a, it's a violent sport. I mean, people hit each other. That's what football, that's the attraction of football. If we ran up and touched each other, no one would want to watch it, Matt. We know that. The only thing I say is this. If you want to stop people from leading with their head, take the face mask off the helmet. And you see a lot of these pretty guys won't go in there with their head first. They'll go in feet first. So what's the best solution? Well, if you want to reduce major injuries in football, your best bet would probably be to drop the pads and helmets entirely. In the early, early days of football, players played with no pads and with, with only a thin leather head protector that was really created mainly to prevent hair pulling. In those days... There were still plenty of injuries, but they tended to be minor, because without any kind of padding, players were less likely to hit each other at full force. You're not going to slam into somebody as hard as you can when doing so will probably hurt you as much as it'll hurt them. The danger created by playing without pads caused players to be more cautious in their behavior, making them at least relative to today, safer. So that's our show. If you're interested in Moral Hazard, I would highly recommend you check out the book Foolproof, How Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe by Greg Ipp. I enjoyed it quite a bit, and I pulled most of the examples that I used here today from that book. It's very readable, with a great style, and, and not too technical. It's worth checking out. As always, if you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong, uh, come on out and join us on our Facebook group, where you can post a comment or suggest a topic for a future episode. Be sure to take a minute to give the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. Doing so really does help the podcast get noticed by more people. Uh, thanks to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro for the show. If you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in economics, but you also have kind of a thing for wedding planning, you should check out my other podcast, Let's Plan a Wedding, where my, uh, my fiance Mandy and I discuss things involved in planning our wedding, as well as weddings in general. Uh, I do keep the economics talk to a minimum for that one, so you don't have to worry about that. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with an episode covering another chapter of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and then back again in two weeks with another topic episode. With that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs>